you'll turn please to Romans chapter 4, we're back to Romans now, taking Romans in sections, and each section is its own series. There'll be five Romans series by the time we're finished. We looked at chapters 1 to 3 earlier this year, the first three months of this year, and now we're going to take six weeks, just May and June here in chapters 4 and 5 of Romans. If I may just for a moment by way of review and also preview, chapters 1 through 3 were about the doctrine of sin, why why this doctrine of sin matters. Chapters 4 and 5 will be why faith matters. And then chapters 6 through 8 to come, this will be the fall, why grace matters. So I'm, I'm organizing the first eight chapters into three core gospel categories, sin, faith, and grace, not as mutually exclusive. They all overlap, of course. And then when we get on the back nine of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, we'll talk about why hope matters. And then chapter 12 to the end of Romans, which is the application section of the book, we will um, use love as the organizing theme for, for looking at chapters 12 to the end. And hope and love are also core gospel categories. So by the time we're done with Romans, sometime into 2019, we will have taken it in five series that encompass five core gospel doctrines, sin, faith, grace, hope, and love. And they'll be punctuated, each Roman series, by many series in between each one from elsewhere in Scripture that's aimed at illustrating the dominant point within each Roman section and also trying to bring it home through applications. That's what we're doing, and now we're back to Romans. And faith is the focus in this section of Romans, Romans 4 and 5. I'll just tell you right up front, this is going to be a little bit more of a doctrinally heavy sermon. Um, There's a lot of preaching today to to felt needs. Uh, People want help in this or that avenue of life, and preaching does have to speak to life as we live it, there are times that we need to draw into our faith, to open the the hood on it, as it were, and get into the component parts. And you say, well, I'm not really interested uh, in that. All I want to know is, does the AC work and does the radio work when I I drive my faith around? Um, And I understand that, and I'll try not to be overly mechanical, overly technical in this message, but I must say this. Uh, The value of looking at a place like Romans 4 and 5, which many find dry, you know, uh, the value in looking at it is that if you get a grip on things here in Romans 4 and 5, it will keep you from underbelieving the gospel. And that is a real threat. I know this is, uh, what I'm about to say is a blanket statement, and I really actually abhor blanket statements, but I'm going to make one. And that is that, that too many Christians in the American context, they carry around this really kind of a loose-leaf faith. It, it, I'm sorry, Colson, to say this, but it looks like my son's drum lesson notebook. You got all these pages that are just kind of crammed in and coming loose and, and shoved around. You know, is that organized? It's, it, it is to say that a lot, a lot of people lack a, a real organized center. I mean, they've, got, they've heard preaching on marriage, and they've heard preaching on child rearing, and, and, and they've heard preaching on how to, how to push through hard things in life, and, and all of that is well and good. There's great and needful Christian teaching on this. I've done it myself, but too many can get all of that and yet underbelieve the gospel, and that's chronic. That's a chronic condition 
in our church cultural context. My job as a minister, as I understand it, is to help the church avoid that because it's problematic. We underbelieve when we don't fully believe we are declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. And you know that we don't really believe that by the amount of, and I don't mean this in a clinical sense, by the amount of anxieties we have with God, worries, insecurities, the, the drivenness we have with God due to this underbelieving the gospel. Romans 4 has something to say to us about this. You've got to understand your, your faith under the hood, not just in the cabin where you sit and deal with the buttons and play with satellite radio and, and look in the back seat and beat your kids with your arm this way, you know. You've got to get under the, you got to get under the hood and look, I've seen you driving out of the parking lot. I know what goes on. Um, you got to get under the hood sometimes. And so in chapter four, we are going to get under the hood a little bit. Chapter four and chapter five. Paul puts before us in these two chapters of Romans, two progenitors, that is two fathers of all. You get Abraham in chapter 4, you get Adam in chapter 5. Adam is the first man. We'll get to him in chapter 5. Abraham is the first man of faith, which is not to say he's the first believer. In Genesis previous to him, there are people calling on the name of the Lord, but he is the case in point when it comes to faith that reconciles us to God justifying faith, it's also known as, in that Abraham was early. Abraham comes before the law. That's significant. He precedes Moses. And he responded rightly to God against all odds that he should because he was a pagan. He was an idolater. He was a nomadic Bedouin. So Paul calls Abraham, this guy, the father of all who believe. We'll see it in our text. Let's read it now. Chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here's a quotation from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here is uh, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, that is for, for ethnic uh, Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father, here's the statement, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, that is to the, to the Gentiles. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, believing Jews. So you've got that Jew-Gentile emphasis from the first three chapters. Here again, he's putting a fine point on this in chapter 4. For our purposes, I want you to note two pairings. Abraham and David, each of whom exemplified faith, neither under-believed God, 
and then the circumcised and the uncircumcised, which is really uh, uh, an argument about sequence, circumcision being the sign and seal of the covenant God made with Abraham after Abraham believed. There is a physical emphasis in this text. The covenant that God made with Abraham promised a descendant among the descendants, plural, a descendant through whom all nations of the world would be blessed. This is the promise God makes to Abraham. It's unconditional. Jesus comes to us through Abraham. And so he's a significant figure. And Paul puts Abraham before us in this chapter to say the need for faith in God, just putting it very generally, the need for faith in God is as old as humanity itself. Faith as the way to God predates any works arrangement God may have made with people. Now stay with me here. I know I'm giving you doctrine, but you can follow this and it's vital that we do. The reason we get confused a lot of times in our standing with God is because we miss this. You've got the Abrahamic covenant and you've got the Mosaic covenant, all right? The Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses promises blessings from God for what? In return for what? Obedience. Disobedience is cursed. Blessings withheld. Blessings removed. It was a works covenant. It was conditional. The arrangement that God had with his people, the the ethnic uh, descendants of Abraham through Isaac was was a works covenant. Obey me and be blessed. Disobey me, unblessed. That's oversimplifying it for sake of contrast. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is unconditional. I will bless you, Abraham, because I will bless you. And from you will come all these peoples, but from, from you will come one who will bless all. And then the conditional covenant that follows that on Abraham's blood descendants through Isaac, the Mosaic covenant, Jesus obeyed those covenant terms, met those conditions in full, so that all could be blessed by God unconditionally, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Everyone who believes in Jesus gets the benefits of Jesus' obedience applied to us. This is huge. We will obey him ourselves. We will. But our acceptance with God, our blessing from God is due to Jesus' obedience on our behalf. That's why God accepts you. This is what the gospel teaches us. Only one human being would be flawless. It would not be Abraham. It would not be Adam. It would not be David, mentioned and quoted in our passage. Not even the one who was after God's own heart for all their importance. They each and all had significant flaws which are not hidden from us. About Abraham, in particular, one writer is polite but doesn't pull his punch when he says about Abraham that he was, quote, not conspicuous in the human qualities that we usually admire, end of quote. His lying, for instance, is a matter of public record. Abraham had genuine human flaws and faults. He couldn't earn anything with God even if he wanted to, but God didn't ask him to earn anything. He asked him to believe something and then to follow through on it, and the same holds true for us. By the way, it's Eugene Peterson who says that about Abraham, that he was not conspicuous in the human qualities that we usually admire. 
Peterson writes that in his book, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. It's a collection of his sermons. Actually, his last book that he's written, he's 84 now, and he said he's putting up his pen. And he adds this, Significant as Abraham is to us and to the world, do you realize how little we know of him? We are so used to measuring the significance of people by what they accomplish, the celebrity factor, but it's impossible to measure Abraham that way. If we think of him as the star quarterback on God's salvation team, we will most certainly misunderstand both Abraham and ourselves. His life is enveloped in deep shadows, actually. The times in which he lived are obscure, little known to historian and archaeologist. And what merges all out of all that is the father of our faith and the friend of God. Peterson talks about how he's called three times in Scripture the friend of God. Abraham in biblical history is like those marvelous paintings of Rembrandt in which a hand or a face is singled out of the background darkness with a single shaft of sunlight. That's why I read that uh, to you, share Peterson's uh, words with you, because that's what we have in Romans 4. It's a single shaft of sunlight shining way back here on Abraham, the father of all who believe, though himself flawed. David, too, in our text, forefather of Jesus, and himself deeply flawed, but neither one underbelieved. You can't say that about them. Abraham is called the father of all who believe, the friend of God, not a bad couple of things to have on your bio. Now, let's step back here for a moment. Put this within the context of Romans, and then let's move to two implications, and we'll be done. There's a question coming out of Romans 1 through 3, and it's, it's entirely practical. And the question is this, if that's our condition, that we're sinful and all that means, all the directions, sin is omnidirectional. We sin against God, we sin against ourselves, we sin against others. If, if, if that's re- our real plight, our real problem, then how do I get beyond that with God? How do I get in? How do I get accepted by him? How do I get the, the, the high dollar word biblically is justified? declared righteous, because righteousness is the issue with God. How does that happen? Is it a matter of gaining? Well, religion says, yes, yes, it is gain. Here's what you do. You wear this, you do that. You don't go there at certain times and seasons and so on. Eat this, don't eat that. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and that's what is counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. Did Abraham gain anything with God, or was he given something by God? He himself, in a sinful state... Abraham was found by God in idolatry, which is kind of the worst of, uh, of the sin categories. And Paul doesn't want what he said in chapter 3 to be merely theoretical. It has to be fleshed out. And who, other than Jesus in Scripture, who's the other figure whose flesh gets made much of? Abraham. Much is made in Scripture of Jesus' physical person. The Word became flesh. Bodily resurrection. And much is made, not as an exact parallel, but nevertheless, much is made of the body of Abraham because he is a forefather, Jesus, his primary descendant. 
And Abraham's circumcision then, mention is that in the, in the bottom part of our text here, a sign of God's covenant with him that through you, your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a reproductive promise in earnest, physically and spiritually. And because it's reproductive, circumcision is the appropriate symbolism. Now, with all this in mind, here's two implications from our text. Just two things that I want you to take away from this. First, the way we get Jesus as our Savior is to take Abraham as our father. That'll be the first thing that I'll try to unpack for you. The second thing is the way Abraham became our father. Verse 11 calls him the father of all who believe. The way Abraham became our father is the way we take when Jesus is our Savior. So these are the two things we're going to talk about. First, the way we get Jesus as our Savior is to take Abraham as our father. And second, the way Abraham became our father is the way we take when Jesus is our Savior. All right? First, the way we get Jesus as our Savior is to take Abraham as our father. What does the gospel teach us at the foundational level? We're always building on it, and we want to know about this and that, and what about this question, what about that? But on the foundational level, what does the gospel teach us? Salvation has always been a matter of faith. Never works. What you do, your goodness, your lack of badness, the content of faith, it shifts between testaments. The coming of Christ is the watershed moment of history, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the church in the world disseminating the gospel message, living for Christ. So as we, as we go along in this text, salvation has always been a matter of faith. That's what, that's what Paul wants us to see. That's why he's invoking Abraham. We get Jesus as our Savior by taking Abraham as our father, he being the father of all who believe. Abraham's story is ours also in that we too get in with God by belief. We believe in Jesus as the only way to be rightly related to God. And when we believe that, and it's not just intellectual, it's affectual, it's all of us, everything about us, like a, like a trailer hitch, connecting to the, to the, to the thing that it's, it's going to be towed be, uh, behind it, when we believe, we get righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, credited to us. This is the real issue with God, righteousness. And I know you may think you know this already and you want preaching that tells you something you don't know, but I bet you underbelieve this. I bet you do. And do you realize, really, that it's not our faith itself that justifies, but that our faith connects us to Jesus himself? I'm slicing this deli thin, but the distinction is really critical. It is Christ who saves us, not our, our faith. Our faith is the means whereby we get in. And, and even then, it's in response to his initiative. It's in response to his call. Faith has a starting point, it has a growth curve, it, it has muscle development, if you want to think of it that way. And really, if we go back and look at Abraham's life, if we did that, if we went back to Genesis and, and, and chronicled his life, we see his faith in God turning into love for God. How do we know that? It's the Isaac event, the almost sacrifice 
of Isaac conveys this to us, that Abraham's faith in God became love for God. And David too. David mentioned in our text here, uh, Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Faith turns to love. This is what we want also. We want our faith in God to become love for God. But we're not saved because we muster enough faith. See, that, that puts you in underbelief, and, and we easily fall into this. We are saved because we, we hitch, we, we tie on to Jesus Christ, His flawlessness covering our flaws, past, present, and also future. Why is this important? Because we are always trying to get our works into the equation, always And not in the way that James says in his New Testament letter that works belong in the equation, as the complement to faith, as the follow-through on believing. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. John Calvin said that, well said. Works follow. What I'm talking about when I say we're always trying to get our works into the equation is this kind of insecurity that develops in us when we try to bank on our works. When we take a page from the other religions of the world, at least the theistic ones, that there is something more we need to do to really get God for us. We know we still have flaws and faults and we hate them. Some of them go so deep in us and we fear, you know, because I still have this prominent flaw, because I, I still uh, go there and do that and whatever it is, or, or, or this problem has not settled my life, or I know I'm holding a grudge uh, over here, then, then I, I fear God may not accept me in the end because of that. I may not be doing enough about these problems. What more must I do to really get in good with God? You've taken Jesus as your Savior, but have you taken Abraham as your father? Why do I put it this way? Because sin is a righteousness problem. We are unrighteous. We are self-righteous. God knows this better than we know it ourselves. Remember Romans 1 to 3, we covered this ground. And Abraham himself had righteousness problems. David did. Adam did. In fact, chapter 5 is about the righteousness problem of Adam that we inherit as his sons and daughters. But we're sons and daughters of Abraham also, meaning what? Meaning, like him, we come out of that which opposes God. He came out of his idolatry. He went out from it at God's direction, literally a direction. God says to Abraham, go. From this place you know to this place over here you don't know that I will show you. Not easy for a nomad to do. See, our assumption is that nomads, they just are sort of these wandering people. They're kind of homeless and not homeless at the same time, you know, and they take their flocks and they just sort of go around. But that, that's not a nomad at all. A nomad always knows where he's going. You kidding? You got all those flocks, you got all those people with you. You're not going to go into a place that has no water, no grazing lands. You're not going to go to a place where hostile peoples are. Nomads always know where they're going. This is a remarkable thing for Abraham to leave where he knew, to go where he didn't know with all his people in flocks. That's a huge deal if you're him. Why would he do that? He took God at his word. It's remarkable, really. This God who appeared to him out of nowhere. He takes him at his word. 
And God says, because you do, you become the father of all who believe. It's incredible. The way to get Jesus as our Savior is to take Abraham as our father. When you and I believe God as Abraham did on this side of the cross, what happens is that Jesus' righteousness gets applied to us. And what is it that we are believing? That righteousness is the issue of God. What is it that we are believing? That, that David was right when he penned in Psalm 32, quoted here in our text in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What are we believing when we believe righteousness is the issue with God? We're believing that acceptance with God is entirely a matter of Jesus' righteousness credited to me. Without that, I am justly condemned. The way we get Jesus as our Savior is to take Abraham as our father, to follow his lead. Believe, and that is credited to us as righteousness. But there's a second implication. The way Abraham became our father is the way we take when Jesus is our Savior. What is that way? It's not the way of self-seeking. Abraham lived in a time when great men made themselves great. And Abraham was a great man. He had flocks. He had servants. He had a ton of people in his household. When he goes to fight uh, with the kings, he's got like 300 young men in his household. He's got an entourage Great men back in that day made themselves great. That's how you, that's how you led. That's how you lorded. But Abraham is remarkable in this too because he doesn't take the way of self-seeking. He submits to this God who comes out of nowhere and says, go to this land that I will show you, follow my lead, and he does it. And This is really telling in Genesis. I mentioned to you that chapters 4 and 5 are about two Genesis figures, Adam and Abraham. You've got the Adam narrative first in Genesis. You've got the Abraham narrative second in Genesis. What comes between them? Remember Genesis? You've got between Adam and Abraham the flood story, and you've got the Tower of Babel story. You remember those two stories? Adam narrative, flood story, Tower of Babel story, Abraham story. Why did the flood come? People were entirely self-seeking, entirely self-seeking. Why did God oppose the Tower of Babel? People were trying to make themselves great in a godlike way. Abraham is the complete antithesis to both, to the self-seeking that required the flood and the self-aggrandizing that was opposed at Babel. How is he different? Abraham did not seek for himself. He sought for God. I sat in a meeting once. It wasn't here in our church. Sometimes when you use an illustration that's too close to the church, people start thinking, well, was that me? Was that her? It wasn't in our church. It was local, but it wasn't anybody else from our church. But there was a guy in that meeting who essentially said, I know the story of Babel is negative, but if we, you know, if we could just connect everybody like that, I thought, man, dude, you've totally missed the point of the story. That was the problem. Are you implying that we, will, we somehow have evolved to where we will now avoid Babel's temptation? We could handle it now? I was amazed by this guy's naivete about human nature. It's, you know, it's the same mistake Facebook made. 
the assumption driving Facebook was, and it still is, judging from their most recent ad, if we can just get everybody connected, then we'll all understand each other and there'll be greater peace and harmony. That was the assumption driving Facebook. Reality, though, is a little short of that, isn't it? Because it turns out I don't want to know what you think about everything and you don't want to know what I think about everything and what everybody else really thinks. And it's made the world more tribal. I mean, has social media been a good thing ultimately? Well, reality is that Facebook has not ushered in utopic peace and harmony. It's made you hate your uncle, you know, for being subjected to his political bluster beyond once a year at Thanksgiving. Facebook is like the Thanksgiving dinner from hell. It never ends. You just go on every time and there's more people churning up stuff, choking on those bones. I can say that I'm off it now, so on Twitter, it's just as bad. It's just more economical, okay? You don't have to endure the diatribes. Let me say this and we're done because we're right at 12. Uh, To look at Abraham is to wonder, how does this nomadic idolater become such a significant figure? How does he get in relevance from this place called Ur to Canaan to Romans 4 to modern-day Memphis, where we're talking about him today? He didn't seek for himself. He sought for God. That's what the faithful do. This was the trailblazer. And it wasn't his impetus going out looking for God. He sought for God as a response to God seeking him out first. This is how it happens. See, as I mentioned earlier, his faith in God ultimately became love for God. Evidenced in Abraham's willingness to give up what he loved most in the world, his son Isaac, because he loved God more and because his belief wasn't just this moment of decision, it, was, it, it enveloped his life that God would accomplish in and through his life what he said he would, even when it didn't make sense. And in that sense, Abraham did not underbelieve. He was never guilty of that. He knew God would find a way. Abraham was on his way. Faith begins at a point in time. It has a growth curve. It has to develop. It needs nurture. It needs stretching like muscles do. Nothing is immediate. Nothing is easy on this way Abraham took that takes us to Jesus now even still. The way Abraham became the father of all who believe is the way we will also take when Jesus is our Savior. It's the way of self-giving to God instead of self-seeking. It's a way of recognition. Recognition that sin is a righteousness problem and I will not be righteous before God without Jesus. I mean, I call it a a way of recognition. Look at the word recognition, recognition. Cognition is what you know. Put a re in front of it. And this is this recognition that sin is a righteousness problem that I need Jesus to solve for me is something I don't square with merely at some point in time when I walked an aisle or I prayed a prayer. It's perpetual. It's ongoing. It's daily. Recognition is recognition. It's preaching the gospel to myself regularly, not to fret over the state of my faith, but to reinforce it, to build it up, to repent of wherever I underbelieve. That there is yet something I must add to what Jesus has accomplished for me. What Abraham's story, we'll pick up with this next week, what Abraham's story essentially says to us is what really matters is what God thinks about you. 
Abraham recognized this initially, and he recognized it ongoing. He believed, and he went to the place God sent him. And in going there with God, he would go further still. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And I think I'll just take us right into benediction since we're a little past time. Father, thank you for your love for us, your grace to us. Uh, Thank you for uh, Abraham as um, the one who who went before us. Uh, We tend to think of these uh, guys as models and guys who could do no wrong, and that's why they're in Scripture, but that's really not the case. Lord, they're all pointers. They're all pointers to Jesus. Anytime we look at a character in Scripture, he's a pointer to Jesus. And so we thank you that that Abraham's a good pointer, that he's one that um, in believing you when you appeared to him out of nowhere and told him to go what was to his mind nowhere, that he went. He took you at his word, at your word, and he went. Thank you for him and thank you for our opportunity these weeks to to look at these two chapters. Help us, Lord, to take away from these things today what you would have us take away. In Jesus' name.